Welcome to Bourbon in the Back Room. Pour yourself a shot and let's talk South Carolina politics. You're asking a lot of a person running for judge already, right? You're asking them to, to basically give up their practice for a few months, right. spend all you know, spend all their time oh, driving yeah. across the state. And if one of our stated goals for this commission is to increase the pool of people running for judges, make sure that we've got diversity on the bench. I don't see that serving that goal. All right, friends, family, listeners, we are back for the first week of the legislative session on Bourbon in the Back Room. Joel Laurie, there's a lot going on in Columbia, including a recent announcement of a retirement of one of our longtime friends in the state Senate. There is lots and lots to talk about listeners in South Carolina government and politics. Joel, tell us what's going on. Well, Vincent, this is our first episode for the New Year 2024. Yes. Happy New Year, buddy. Happy New Year. So you 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 stole my thunder, uh-huh. but our good friend, the senator from Lexington, about that? after what will be 48 years. The longest of, serving state senator in the country yeah, right now, and, I and we have got to get him on the show. We'll but a quick shout out and toast. This week's toast goes to the Honorable Nikki Sessler, who announced this week he will be retiring after 48 years. A great father, a great husband, a great grandfather, and a remarkable public servant. Cheers. Cheers. Joel, before we leave that, I was I was thinking on my drive over here about Senator Setzler, Nikki, and I thought to myself, you know, that kind of elected official, um, not only the way he approached it with the hard work, the dedication, the commitment, but also the philosophy, really, we don't see it much anymore. Um, he chose to remain a Democrat when he could have easily switched parties, probably become the leader of the Senate, would have become the leader of sure. the Senate. Um, chairman of the Finance Chairman of the Finance Committee. Um, it's not like he's a real liberal political person. Oh, no. He's not. So he would have comfortably fit within the Republican Party. Um, but he didn't. And the reason I think he didn't, just knowing him and, and, and looking at him, is he is just a loyal human being. And there aren't a lot of people like that in politics anymore. Um, you know, he stuck with the party because that was who he had come into office with and who he had committed to over time, not philosophically, but just because he was loyal to his friends who were Democrats and the people around the state. Um, But that allowed him to operate really, you know, not as a partisan, even when he was the leader of the Democrats, but as someone who could get things done and work across the aisle and work with conservatives and liberals and moderates. Listen, the accolades um, are coming out by the hundreds um, over the course of the last 24 hours, people commenting on this. And you're absolutely right. You know, Senator Sessler is one of the few people that served with my dad, and then I got to serve yeah, with. And yeah. he and my dad were very close. And I don't know, I, I posted something today on LinkedIn. I don't do Facebook, but I posted something. If you look up the word statesman in the dictionary, you'll find a picture of this guy. I don't know anybody else that embodies the word public servant yeah. or statesman than Nikki Sessler. And just, you know, I'm happy for him. I don't mind telling you, he and I were exchanging yes, messages yesterday. Yes. His wife and I were exchanging messages today. I'm really happy for him. It was the right call. It was the right yeah. call. I think that, you know, he's still, you know, he's still got a, a, a lot of things to look forward to yes. in his life, his children and his grandchildren. And I think he's going to miss it, but I also think he's going to enjoy, as you and I have, the ability to have more quality time with family and it's friends. The, it's the state's loss, his gain. There's no question about it. But Vincent, moving along from the Sessler news, the circus is back in town. Okay, <laughs> It's good to As have you them. recall, the um, second Tuesday yes. of every 
January, the legislature comes back to town. A um, lot of interesting issues I, on I the agenda. I sent a lot of my friends in the legislature text yesterday Condolence saying, notes. <laughs> saying, I'm so excited you guys get to go back. Yeah, <laughs> my friend Daryl Jackson usually calls me about this time every year going, I can't believe I'm still doing this. But we're but thankful anyway, they're doing it. We're thankful because there are a lot of great public That's service right. down there. I want to play a clip. I think WIS ran a great story uh, just the other night setting up sort of this year's um, legislative session, and then we'll come back and analyze it a little bit. In the House of Representatives, Republicans are fast-tracking a bill that would ban minors in South Carolina from undergoing gender transition procedures, including surgeries, hormone therapy, and puberty blockers. It's a top priority of the session for many Republicans, with its lead sponsor, the House Republican leader. Several people say, well, is it taking place in South Carolina now? I don't care if it's taking place in South Carolina. It should never take place in South Carolina. Democratic leaders say they hope the Republican-dominated legislature doesn't get bogged down debating social issues this year, an election year for all lawmakers. Both Democratic leaders say their priorities include making South Carolina the 39th state to legalize medical marijuana, a bill championed by Republican Senator Tom Davis with strong bipartisan support. We have got to start expanding personal liberties, not trampling on them in the state. Senate Democrats say one of their top focuses is passing a hate crimes bill, with South Carolina one of just two states without such a law. We basically have a bill that's been pending for year after year after year that would just enhance the penalty for somebody who was convicted of a hate crime. We think that's an important statement. Uh, to make for our state. But Senate Republican leader Shane Massey, who personally opposes the hate crimes bill, says there's not enough support among his caucus to even debate that legislation. Okay, Vincent, so um, a lot of stuff going on. Um, Republicans are leading on social issues again. Um, Shocker. Yep, and, you know, (laughs) appealing to their base, I guess, for for no other um, reason. Um, you know, creating um, a solution to a problem that really doesn't exist in South Carolina. It is what it is. It's a waste of time. But some of the more meaty issues, medical marijuana, I am told, and we're going to have to get him back on the show. Um, he was our first guest, our good friend, the senator from Beaufort, Tom yes. Davis. I am told that they have worked out a compromise where he's going to get a vote on his bill. I, I anticipate a vote on the medical cannabis bill early in the session in January. And Joel, then that's going to put the spotlight right on the House of Representatives. Remember, two years ago, they avoided a vote when the Speaker Pro Tem presided. Tommy the Pope, Speaker, our yeah, buddy. Yeah. On, on, a, on, a, on a ruling, a truly kind of a technical ruling, uh, or I shouldn't say technical, a ruling about where, where a bill uh, that raises revenue can originate, which House, he struck the bill and they weren't allowed to vote on it. Yep. And, 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 you know, it frustrated a lot of people, not only because of that ruling on this particular bill, but the potential precedent that yeah. it sets. But, but I, I, it really puts a, a spotlight on the House members because, you know, medical cannabis polls well in South Carolina. Um, we're one of the few states remaining that don't have a medical cannabis um, uh, law that allows some type of legal use of cannabis for medical reasons. And I hear that if it comes up for a vote in the House, it will pass. The question is, does it come up for a vote? We will see, and we will be reporting on it, and we'll have to bring Senator Davis back on to talk about it. You saw um, Senator Hutto talking about hate crimes. You know, this is something that I know the majority leader is not in favor of, but I think there's going to be a big push by Senate Dems just to get a vote. Yeah. You know, just to get a vote, and in this rising level of 
increased hate crime activity around the country, particularly anti-Semitism since yeah. October the 7th. Um, it'll be interesting to see if that bill makes it to the finish line. And then, of course, we've got judicial reform, um, Vincent, an issue we've talked a lot about and, and something I'm going to mention in, in another bourbon brief. So we're we're poised for what I think will be a fun. It's always anytime you have the last year of a two year session, emotions get high, right? Yes. Well, elections are up. Elections and, are and up. Time to pass bills are running out. And people know if they don't get their bill to yeah. the finish line, they got to start all over. Governor Rick Master uh, Vincent has once again introduced his budget uh, for our listeners um, the way the budget process works is the governor presents a budget at the beginning of the session. Uh, it goes to the House Ways and Means. They can throw it all away, but, you know, they'll use Truthfully, it as a, now, as a basis. The, yeah, for the governor's budget has a lot more influence than it did, say, 10 years ago. Much more than when Mark Sanford and Nikki yes, Haley would present yes, a budget. Especially Absolutely. because the agency, it has the agency's requests. And now the governor appoints pretty much all agency directors or boards you know, those those have some clout. So, yeah, that that process is it goes to the General Assembly, goes to the House, then it will go to the Senate and back to the House. And eventually we'll have a state budget. Sure. Education takes center stage, which I think, Joel, just to pause for a minute, is interesting that that Henry, that Governor McMaster, he's really lifted two issues that aren't traditional Republican issues. One is public education uh, and the other is conservation. Um, he is pushed very hard to conserve significant swaths of, of property and land and waterways across the, the state. It's interesting to think about. It, it really is. And, and as we've discussed a few times on the show, um, a lot of our friends, particularly Republicans in the legislature, say it's been nice to work with the governor yeah. who's not running for president. Right. right? right. Um, and all right. So education, you know, continuing to raise teacher salaries. He wants to get those to fifty thousand dollars base within a few years. He's putting money in infrastructure this year, Vince. That he's he really has got yeah. a large chunk of money going to bridges. You know, he's very concerned yeah. about our our aging <clears throat> infrastructure in South Carolina, and and I commend him for that. So we'll have to see what happens, um, Vincent. Moving along, the Senate. District 19 voters went to the polls last week. Tamika Isaac Devine, as predicted, is the new senator to succeed our friend John Scott. Yes. Um, Congratulations, Tamika. Absolutely. Need to get her on the show. And she talked about what an honor it was to fill the shoes yeah. of, of, of yeah. the late, great John Scott. Um, just such a fun guy. I still, I still have a hard time coming to terms with the fact that, that Senator Scott is yeah. not here. Vincent, um, we talked about this on our last show. And by the way, our Will Folks year-end show has just been blowing up our ratings. We've got listeners from all over the country. We've got a lot of comments. Sometimes I'll see people in the grocery store or walking in the neighborhood that say, hey, yeah. I love your podcast. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting um, – Will Folks with with Fitz News now, he really is one of the few media outlets that gets stories that are breaking on the South Carolina political scene. And, you know, 10 years ago, people would have just kind of mocked uh, Will and and his reporting. But but truthfully, he'll break a story days in advance of of the established newspapers or uh, television stations. So, you know, there's still some things on there that are uh, more rumor than reality. But it's also lots of things that are... Um, that are breaking stories that you don't see anywhere else. Yeah, and I enjoy it, and we might have to consider making that a New Year tradition, yeah, just having yeah. them. But anyway, um, we talked about this increased liquor liability yeah. insurance, and, and I'll be honest issue. with you, I had not heard about this. Yeah. I'm not in the bar business, but um, great story on WIS-TV recently about this. 
Um, I want to play this clip and then kind of get your thoughts on it. That's right. Many businesses here in the Columbia area have had trouble staying in operation due to the increases. And I was told by SE Venue Crisis, who advocates for these small businesses, they've seen the impact this has had on bars, restaurants, and other mom-and-pop establishments here in the Midlands. Sheila Merck says she's heard from dozens of businesses across the state via Facebook and Instagram about this issue. She says locally businesses like New Brooklyn Tavern and Wico Bottle and Beer Garden have had major increases in their insurance. But she says the issue spreads far wider than just the bars. Our legislators really need to think about what's going on with small businesses. It's not just bars and restaurants. It's not just music venues. It's every single business in South Carolina that's being affected by liability insurance. And our legislators can do something about it. With businesses like Henry's and Casey announcing their closure on Facebook over the weekend, Merck explains how this shows the increase hurting the economy. We have multiple people in the legislation who understand that this is an issue. And if it's not taken care of soon, you know, our state is really going to be um, in a bad situation financially. You know, this is this is about more than bars and restaurants and music venues. This is about South Carolina's economy. So, Vincent, um, I wasn't even aware of this until you and Will brought this up and then y'all proceeded to have a judiciary <laughs> subcommittee meeting on the podcast. But But remind our listeners how this issue came to be. So there is a problem in South Carolina that that led to this problem. And the problem is that there are a number of people who are served while they are drunk in uh, bars, restaurants, and then they go out and they kill people on the road. Uh, and South Carolina has had a very strict law that says if you're a bar or restaurant, you are not allowed to serve a drunk pe- person alcohol. Uh, and the goal is to keep people who were drunk off the streets. How do you define um, drunk, though? Um, well, I mean, we define it every day when you get pulled over for DUI. I know that, but how but is, bar, how is, for things a bar owner should look for are somebody spilling a pitcher of beer, somebody falling down. It has to be pretty blatant, frankly, um, mm-hmm. for to, to, to hold the, the owner responsible. Anyway, um, so what the legislature did to try to protect the victims of these types of, of injuries is they required bars, restaurants, to carry liability insurance. And that way... If they do serve a person they shouldn't serve, maybe the person's underage, maybe the person is already drunk, uh, and that person then goes out and kills somebody or injures somebody, there's insurance to to take care of this person. Sure. So it's sure. a it's a you know makes sense. It's a smart law. Otherwise, who bears the burden of that? The poor the victim. injured victim. Right. The problem is that um, that the rates for that insurance over the last five years have skyrocketed, and that's causing very real problems. Uh, with some small businesses. I will say that you see that also uh, in Florida, for example, with uh, wind and, and rain, wind and hail, ins- or excuse me, wind and, and uh, hurricane insurance, right? right? So in these markets where there is a problem, rates go up, and then the legislature and government has to figure out how to solve the problem. And that's, I'm afraid this problem, one's, I'm afraid this solve- one's going to be pitched as some kind of partisan. I heard that, you know. Little, oh, they're talking about tort reform. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's not, yeah. This is a very specific problem. Um, you could lower the amount of insurance required to be carried. So right now, I think it's a million. You could lower that to, to half a million. Um, you could clarify when the bar uh, or restaurant, this is kind of the point you were going to, is liable. Um, you yeah. know, do they, do, what do you have to prove to what show that they're liable? What about the joint several liability part of that? Explain that. that yeah, so, so that was what Will and I were arguing about. And most people don't understand it. But the question is really, who should bear the fault for an injured person? Okay, and I have to give you the scenario. You have... A very drunk person, all right, and that very drunk person's falling all over the place, and they go in two bars. Um, they get one beer at 
at one bar and they get three beers at another bar. They shouldn't have got beer in any bar because they were already drunk. Right. Well, in that scenario, the one they got three beers at, beers at probably bears more liability, right? Sure. All right. Well, if that person then goes and hits somebody and kills them and uh, and that and the family is trying to recoup what they've lost, the question is, and, and let's say the, the bar that served three beers is bankrupt, okay? Right now, you can get all the money you're owed from the bar that served the one beer, all right? Because the idea is the at-fault party, regardless of how much fault they have, should pay it, not the innocent victim. Okay. Now, if you can recover from the, the at-fault party that served the larger beers, at-fault yeah, party, then great. Right. Yeah. But the, the question really is when, that, when one of those parties can't pay, who should bear that burden? Will Folks was saying the victim should bear that burden. Vincent was saying that's not a good solution. To this problem. All right. So what would be, I mean, you mentioned some solutions. Is there like a, a per, perhaps some sort of uninsured fund or sure, something? Sure. The I government mean, could set up a fund. That's what we've seen happen in Florida with uh, wind and hurricane insurance. Um, you know, then the rates are generally kept lower. There are a lot of solutions, but a solution is not just saying victims of, of, of injured victims shouldn't be able to recover from the people I, who've injured them. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, but, you know, it's, for me, I wasn't even aware of this issue. You mentioned because right. you own a building in Camden. There's a new well, restaurant. I've actually company. helped some local restaurants and bars with this problem because yeah. it's a real problem. And I don't think, you know, uh, those who are representing the victims shouldn't say it's not a problem. It is a problem. Sure. And there needs to be a solution to it. And yeah. solutions might be you better define when a bar or restaurant is liable. A, a solution might be the government well, creates a fund. Lower the yeah. amount of insurance. It could insurance, be lower the right. insurance. It could be. So there, but we need to think in a less partisan way about I it. I don't. I mean, yeah. you could even say that, that, and joint several liability, if, if this bar is 15%, they can't be held liable more than, than what, twice their original liability Yeah, but then who wears the cost of all those medical bills? The victim. Yeah, the, or the, the fund or something. Yeah. Like, all or, right, or you said, so a great example of that is in workers' comp, um, the state has set up an uninsurance fund to cover yeah. those very situations. The name of our podcast is Bourbon in the Back Room. <laughs> We're big supporters of the bar <laughs> industry, so they need to figure this <laughs> shit right. out. There all right, you go. Here we go. Vincent, um, so— a couple of weeks ago, we had Adam Morgan, who is challenging William Timmons, and we were just talking about, well, folks, he has broke a story, which we've all have been hearing rumors of, that Senator Richard Cash from Anderson yeah. could potentially challenge Jeff, Jeff Duncan, another upstate congressman who finds himself in the midst of some some issues. Um, I never served with Cash. Did you serve with Yeah, Cash? I served with both Jeff, um, with Congressman Duncan, and with and Senator Cash. And I can say that it doesn't really matter which one of them is there. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, let me ask you it a different way. I mean, you know, based on what you know and, about— And if you need constituent service, don't call either one. And I like them. They're nice human beings, but, boy, I wouldn't want to rely on them. I understand that. But my point is, you know, you, you brought this up in the last podcast about how— Personal scandals don't seem to bother the president, yeah. but we were we were debating whether or not that that same uh, exemption translates down to the local level. I could see a guy like Cash giving Duncan a real run for his money. Yeah, I think that um, that it does. People care much less about social scandals than they did ten or fifteen years ago, um, but it still matters more on the lo- more local level you go sure. than, than the national level. For example, we saw you know a lot of alleged scandals brought up in the Nancy Mace race down in Charleston. Nobody cared. Uh, the upstate's a little different. <laughs> you, <laughs> you think? Because <laughs> in Charleston, they don't care. Right. But, um, you know, so maybe in the upstate and maybe in a congressional race. I think, you know, maybe the hypocrisy claim, I think this is what Will Folks was saying, may matter more than actually what you did. Yep. Let's see how the money comes in. But I, yeah. that's there's going to be some fun races to watch. And, and, of course, you can get your inside information 
uh, right here. Where, Vincent? Bourbon in the back room. And, Joel, before we uh, leave this segment, I do want to thank our listeners for sending emails, for going on our Facebook page. Uh, remember, our email is bourboninthebackroom at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook or um, whatever they call the, the Musk thing now, X. Yeah, Is that X. like the artist formerly known as Prince? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Maybe who cares? We did get one really nice comment recently. I want to let our listeners know. It said, friends, I've been a longtime listener of the podcast. I just wanted to take a moment and thank you for the product you guys put out. I really appreciate the variety of guests from all camps you bring on. And then they said a lot of nice things about me, and we're like, they're glad Joel's on the show, too. <laughs> I didn't exactly read it that way um, as insight as a good level-headed person. But, but yes, and Vincent, we want you to give us reviews. You know, giving us reviews wherever you get your podcast, uh, Apple, Spotify, whatever, it helps our ratings. It helps our rankings. It helps us charge our advertisers more. You know, yes. those are all things that yes. matter so that we can continue to provide this great service. And I'll tell you something else you probably didn't know, Vincent. I look at the analytics, as you know, every week, yeah. and we've got listeners all over the world. One of them is a guy from Greenwood, South Carolina, who ran into Holly, our director, the other day. He now lives in Oxford. Nice. And he was remarking on how he loves to listen to the podcast I every love episode. I so love it. No, thanks, we got Bruce, people, for, for tuning in. We've got people all over the state and all over the country and now all over the world. You got a brother. All right. One more bourbon brief here. Um, We've talked a lot about judicial reform here. Yes. Um, this is an issue that pertains to senators and magistrates. So before yeah. I play this clip, and, tell our listeners what magistrates are. Well, well, really, if you want to talk about judicial reform, a lot of, of what is being talked about is is a solution in, in search of a problem. But there are <laughs> some problems with the magistrate system in South Carolina. That's an that's a important conversation to be had. Magistrates in South Carolina are appointed by the governor, but they're appointed by the recommendation of the state senator or senators from the county. Uh, and the tradition has been that the governors don't turn down the state senator's recommendation unless there's some compelling reason. Oftentimes, maybe it's a criminal record or it's a financial problem. Um, but the governors appoint them upon the recommendation of the senators. One of the problems that's come up is that some senators uh, don't make recommendations when terms expire in these magistrate positions. And so the magistrates are just what we call held over and they're right. in a holdover status. Um, it's not very healthy. Um, you know, you need to, you have terms for a reason. And if a magistrate's just there, maybe going to be there the next week, maybe, you know, going to lose their job. It's not healthy for the system. Why would, and, 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 you know, I, one of the few things we really could impact in the Senate in our own communities was the appointment of magistrates. Yeah, right. and, and I was really proud of the magistrates I appointed. I brought both gender and racial diversity to the bench until Senator McLeod got rid of almost all of them when she became senator. Okay, but why would somebody remain in holdover status? Is there any theory behind well, that? Well, look, here's the truth. Many officials on the state level that the governor appoints are in holdover status because governors just don't pay attention to their appointments. Okay. So on the magistrates, that also is sometimes true. There are some state senators that just don't want to deal with it, and so okay. magistrates are in holdover status. That's not a good situation. There are other situations where it is, frankly, kind of a political tool. Good. Um, the, mat, the the senator in a county might, you know, that the magistrates might, let's say, have a large family, uh, or they might be tied into a big voting sector or sure. whatever. You and get so, rid of the magistrate, you yeah. lose all this. Yeah. All right, we're going to play this clip from Live Five News, um, and there's a great uh, there's a great interview with our friend, the senator from Richland, Senator Harpootlian. 
A new bill could limit how long magistrate judges can remain on the bench past their approved term, also known as holdovers. The legislation pre-filed by Richland County Democrat Senator Dick Harputlian would set a 90-day limit after a magistrate's term expires in which they can remain in their position without reappointment. If the governor and the senator don't agree on somebody, the position becomes vacant. Um, and uh, that means that the people of that county will be uh, one less magistrate. The goal is to provide opportunities to reevaluate if the judge is right for the position. Currently, senators select the candidates and recommend them to the governor, who then appoints them for four years. There is no enforcement to remove magistrates when their term ends, unless a new person is selected. This allows them to sit on the bench, mostly unchecked, whereas if senators were to renominate them at the end of the term, the governor would determine whether they should continue to serve. Both Republicans and Democrats want to maintain this power, this control over who the magistrates are in their community without anybody interfering. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. So um, so then so there's Senator Harputlian and he's pushing a pretty strong bill. And, and I can tell you, since you and I well, when you and I served, I remember passing at least one piece, if not two, of magistrate's reform yeah. that would require things like a college education right. or right. a four-year degree equivalent. And, you know, I always tried to appoint someone, someone with one of the guys I appointed was a, was a trooper. The other one was uh, the lady I appointed was a lawyer, some right. kind of background in, yeah. law, in, in the legal community. Um, how far does this go? Uh, I don't think— this bill probably goes anywhere, but I would hope that this continued discussion about how to improve the magistrate system occurs. You know, we didn't say this, but these are where you, if you have a traffic ticket, these are the people you're in front of. Um, if you have a DUI, these are the people you're in front of. If you're a landlord or a tenant, that's just who you're in front of. So they're pretty meaningful things if you're an abused victim or accused of abuse. It's the old local county judge. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So they're important positions. Um, making them college graduates, having some educational requirements was important. Um, I had a bill, for example, that would have had the Supreme Court appoint them instead of the political system. Uh, but, you know, there were ways to improve it. I don't know if this is the magic bullet, um, but, but certainly it can be improved. It'll be interesting to see. We'll be right back after we take this brief break and hear from our sponsor. Vincent, I'm here with my friend Todd Oxberger. Todd is the president and CEO of Lexington Medical Center and one of our great sponsors of Bourbon in the Backroom. Todd, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Todd, you know, when I think about Lexington Medical Center, and I know so many people that work there, they all seem to have such great pride in what they do, and they're all such professionals. How do y'all make that happen? Joel, I'm glad you said so. I'm so proud of our nurses and doctors. Our, our staff are local folks taking care of their friends and neighbors, and, and your experience and your time is as important to them as it is to you. You mentioned the word local. Am I correct? Are y'all the only local hospital system here in the Midlands? We're the only local independent hospital system in the Midlands of South Carolina. Well, thanks for what you do taking care of our community, and thanks for being a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Backroom. All right, during the break, I'm here with my friend Stephanie DeFries. Stephanie is the vice president of the Group and Individual Division of Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, one of our favorite sponsors. Stephanie, welcome back. Thanks, Joel, for having me. You know, a lot of people think about Blue Cross, and it's sort of synonymous here in South Carolina with health insurance. But uh, you do a lot more than health insurance, don't you? When people go to retire, what happens next? We have an entire area dedicated to Medicare products, and we can help them not only from early on with individual coverage, when they're employed with group coverage, but then when they're ready to retire or turn 65, we can offer a Medicare plan as well. So from the time 
somebody is born to the time they retire and go on Medicare, they can choose Blue Cross. That is correct, yes. Stephanie DeVries, thanks again for joining us and thank our friends at Blue Cross for being a sponsor of Bourbon in the Background. Okay, Vincent, we are back, and um, for our first guest, we've got somebody special. I'm excited. It's the first week of the legislature and our first guest of the year. year, And it's her second time being with us. She joined us, um, I think, a couple years ago in our old office, but she always brings um, a delicious bottle of bourbon with her. Vincent, tell us about our guest. Well, why don't we let our guest tell us about the bottle of bourbon that she brought, but we're pleased to welcome back Representative Spencer Wetmore from Charleston, who was elected in 2020 in a special election, if I That's recall, right. to yeah. the South. She was a flip. Yes, she to the South Carolina. That's right. Represented and represents one of the few swing districts left in South Carolina. Uh, is a mother, uh, an attorney, um, just a wonderful human being, and also, even better, she brings bourbon with her to the show. Tell us about this wonderful bottle. Hey, listen, anytime I get to promote my businesses back home, so Charleston Distilling Company is in District 115. Uh, They brag about having one of the the high, y'all, I'm not a bourbon distiller you brought guru it, so you're here, good. but they brag about having one of the highest sort of drop rates yeah. for the, the smoothness of the bourbon. It is smooth. You can smell it and it's just, so, smooth. and it's a, what do we, what do they call Tell us about who it is. Oh, so it's from, it's a Denmark Vasey straight bourbon. So obviously yeah. it's steeped in Charleston right. history. And great and historical name, right? In right. South Carolina history. That's, that's wonderful. Right. So let's do a quick toast to our guest, Spencer Wetmore. Cheers. Well, thanks for having me. Spencer, welcome back. So you're back. This is your third session, third, three and a half. Well, so it actually is a start to my fifth year okay. because of the special election. Yeah, so okay. whatever that's third session, though, yep, right? Yep, yeah. Right. What does it feel like? This is we're, we're taping the show on Wednesday. Um, what does it feel like? You've been back for two days. It's mm-hmm. still it, adrenaline running, getting excited like a like a, a basketball player running on the court. Yeah, a little bit. You know, Good. I've got my hype song ready when I run out to, to home plate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I yeah. made Bubba start playing hype music for me when I walk <laughs> in. Yeah, so. Let's do it. Bubba, by the way, Bubba, Bubba Cromer is the what do you call the reading clerk? House of the reading house, clerk. A former member of the legislative That's delegation right. from Richland County. One of a few independents. That's yeah, right. Great guy. That's right. House. So you were, I'll remind our listeners, you were elected in a special election in 2020. And why was it a special election? Uh, so when Peter McCoy stepped down, he was nominated and became the U.S. attorney right. for South Carolina. Um, I stepped in and ran for that seat. And I think we went over this back then, but I had something like it was a primary, a runoff, a special, <laughs> and then a general that year. So. And remind us, did you have an opponent in 2022? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And your district mm-hmm. had been redrawn then? Is that right? In the Gosh, yeah. It, okay. Those were the new lines. Yeah. yeah. So my district didn't change a whole lot. Okay. Um, you're right. It is one of the very few swing right. districts. Um, you know, I think it's obviously with the incumbency, it's sort of widened the, the lead a little bit every time. Well, I would say it's because of your hard work and dedication and the fact that your voters like you. Well, thank you. You I should do, say that, too. I, I, you know. <laughs> and I can also tell you, Vincent, when she walks in the House chamber, the IQ doubles as a graduate <laughs> of Princeton and Vanderbilt yes. University, right? Yes. All right, Spencer, oh, so um, let's talk about—we um, we just finished our bourbon breeze. Judicial reform seems to be a subject that has gained some momentum. We've talked about this in a few prior episodes. Mm -hmm. It's not the kind of thing somebody's going to approach you about in the grocery store, but yet it seems to feel like something may happen. What are you hearing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm actually on the ad hoc committee. Um, You know, it's interesting— 
I was pretty vocally opposed to giving the nomination power to the governor. Sure. Not because I'm not, not because I don't think we can and should make some changes, but because to me, that seemed like it was just creating a different problem, right? Yeah, I mean, imagine, then, look how wonderful that's worked on the federal level, right? <laughs> right. <Not>. Obama and <laughs> Trump judges, right, and we're we at, looking at who appointed them, yeah. and then we're, you know, it becomes really, really political at that point. So for me, and you know, just the whole thing, the whole idea of influence, what we're trying to do is eliminate this perception of influence right. or this concern that people aren't getting a fair shake from influence. Well, if it moves to a different person, it's going to be their yeah. Donors are there. always said everything's politics, it's just whose politics is it? That's right. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. So, Spencer, That's you know, right. there's a so, lot of the focus seems to be on this judicial screening committee. As mm-hmm. we've discussed, this is this group that of um, House members and senators and lay people that will take a field of candidates running for a judicial position and narrow it to three. We've heard some things. Maybe they get rid of the screening committee. Maybe they get rid of the lawyer legislators on the screening committee. Mm -hmm. Maybe they just report out all the candidates and let the legislature decide. Look in your crystal ball. Where do you think this could end up? What are some of the stronger possibilities? You know, I I see us trying to spread it out a lot more. Right now, the perception and the reality is that a lot of the power is concentrated with the six lawyer legislators on that committee. So if I had a magic wand, I'll get to the crystal ball in a sec, but if if Spencer had a magic (laughs) wand, I would, I would expand it out and create panels so that, you know, let's say there were 15 members of the selection committee and the, the person coming in for screening is going to get a random five. So they don't know who they're screening. The screener's Sorry, the, the judge doesn't know who they're seeing. The screeners don't necessarily know who Would they are. Would you have are. lawyer legislators on that committee? Yeah, I think I think it's I think it's one it of several have to be important voices. Right? Exactly, right. legislators. Um, I also would support term limits. I think having some term rotation for, for the, the members, members of the committee. Okay. Exactly, I think having some rotation there. Uh, well, again, anything that we can do to sort of mitigate, reduce that perception of influence. And in just my to remind mind. our listeners, the whole. Uh, panel, the commission or committee was created um, years ago as a reform uh, to say, hey, instead of just the candidates coming before the legislature and being voted on, we ought to have some screening process. So it's kind of ironic that all of the the complaints now are about what the reform was. So what about, um, I think, Vincent, you mentioned this in a previous episode. What about letting all the candidates? So the committee says you either qualified or not qualified. And if there are 10 people that are qualified, send them over to the General Assembly and let y'all figure it out. What are your thoughts? I'm not wild about that proposal. I understand why people are pushing for it, but I, just like Vincent, you're talking about creating an intention, you know, creating a new problem. Mike, I've, I've got three concerns about that. One, I think that you're asking a lot of a person running for judge already, right? You're asking them to, to basically give up their practice for a few months, right. spend all, you know, spend all their time driving yeah. across the state. And if one of our stated goals for this commission is to increase the pool of people running for judges, make sure that we've got diversity on the bench. I don't see that serving that goal. I think um, the second thing I think um, it's certainly I think we have to give JMSC some credit for all the work they do. I mean, think about how much of the committee they read all those reviews. They they are privy to a lot of information. And and, and look, here's the truth. Our judges in this state Mm -hmm. are pretty damn good. And our system is pretty damn good compared 
to what we see coming out of many other states where governors appoint based on a partisan or mm-hmm. campaign donor basis or where it's a popular election and you literally have people running for office and raising money from corporations oh. and lawyers. Yeah, and we don't yeah. think either yeah. of those yeah. are going to happen. But I want to go back to this issue, Spencer, because I'm a little undecided on it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think you still potentially, you know, there's been a lot of criticism that the election is won before it's ever had, Okay. You know, and, and, so, and let's just be honest. And Joel and I can. My experience has been sometimes that has happened. Sure, you know mm-hmm. the, the panel a sets it up. candidate. Yeah. So always, could you make, increase? I mean, could you increase the number? Maybe? Yeah, sure. So I think again, I, it's funny. Cindy Scoffy with the Post and Courier said that I was a defender of the status quo. Good friend of ours, former <laughs> and, guest. Yeah. yeah, and it's so it's the first time and I've ever been called now, that. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, that's I, just because you don't like what she likes. Well, <laughs> it, it was it was pretty funny. But right. so again, I don't want to I don't want to mistake my comments here. I'm I I think that. There is, it's the time to get things right. I think if we can make it better, we should. And I think we're going to. Um, increasing to five, maybe. If we do increase it, I feel very strongly that we set up a constructive process by which candidates and legislators interact, whether it's the local delegation for a resident seat, whatever that is. I think it's very important that we have a process for these judges. Because right now, I mean, we shouldn't be asking 25 people, much less 125 if we let them all out. We shouldn't be asking that many people to stand on the bridge of the parking deck and hope to shake a legislator's hand as they're walking on the floor of the house. It's a miserable one. Vincent, I'm going to pause real quick because we've got some elections coming up. Probably in February, although I don't think the date has been set. But what's interesting about this, Vincent, is, all right, so the screening committee will issue a report. Yeah. Vincent, walk our listeners, because, Spencer, we always like to inform and educate about process. There's this funny time frame where so, where you can ask or not ask for a right. commitment. Yeah, tell right. us about so that. So the way it works, and, and this, again, was part of the reform effort of, of you know, 20-plus years ago— uh, the candidates for judgeship can't ask for a commitment to vote. They can go talk to legislators, and they should. They can go tell them their judicial philosophy and, and their past work, and it, but they can't ask for a commitment to vote until the screening committee has released the report. 24 hours or something. Yeah. Is that what it is, Spencer? It's, it's the report. Um, and there's a delay, I and I don't remember. I think it's a week, actually. Yeah. I don't know. I, it's whatever bizarre, it is, it's not but, long enough. then you've got judicial candidates right. going, but, but well, that, Senator Shaheen, yeah, um, yeah. at the appropriate time, I hope you'll consider me. You <laughs> and, 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 and How many the, times have you heard that, Spencer? Oh, the goal uh, is to, to, number one, not lock, lock up the race before the vetting is done, and that's a legit. Yeah. I think that's pretty much worked. Um, you know, Nothing's perfect, and I think we have a tendency to – to beat up the good in an effort to find the perfect. Um, yeah, can some tweaks be done to improve it, of course, as with anything. But yeah. uh, I really hope you guys don't don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Fair enough. Spencer, um, in our bourbon briefs, we talked about Tom Davis's 10-year um, mission to um, approve medical cannabis in South Carolina. And we've been hearing, at least on the Senate side, that he could get an early vote on that. And Vince reminded our listeners that y'all were Looking like you were headed towards a vote a few years ago, and then out of nowhere, uh, Speaker Pro Tem <laughs> Tommy Pope ruled that that wasn't going to happen based on a technicality. Does that bill get to the House floor? And if it does, are the votes there to pass it? It's my opinion that we've always had the votes in the House to pass it. We never got it to a vote because of that procedural technicality, which, of course, has been Correct. You know, now the revenue piece, if if that goes in, it'll go in on the House side, if at all. Right. Um, And so, you know, now I think we will actually see votes on it. Uh, You know, it's interesting. The the increased 
numbers of the Freedom Caucus have actually improved this issue. So you see the Freedom Caucus supporting it along with the Democrats and, of course, some mainstream Republicans. Uh, and I think between those groups, you actually, we do have the numbers. I think we've had the numbers. Yeah, well, what we've seen in the state and Spencer Joel and I have certainly seen this because we've been around longer than you, um, which is maybe fortunate or unfortunate. <laughs> I'm not sure, but regardless, you've seen a Republican party that was really, really, really heavily dominated by religious conservatives in the state. And that has been eroded, not to say that there aren't religious conservatives and it's not to say that, that there's not influence, but the more libertarian freedom strain of the Republican Party certainly seems to have taken a big bite out of that. And I think it'll make a difference on on this. It's an interesting issue because it's one of the few that's high profile and a social issue that doesn't fit nicely within the partisan. Um, right. Which are the issues I used to love. I hate <laughs> right. these party yeah. issues. Yeah. And, and speaking of social issues, um, Spencer, it uh, looks like the culture war is coming back to um, the House um, we saw where the House Republican leader, um, Davy Hyatt, was speaking at a press conference, and they're they're pushing a lot of um, culture-type bills dealing with transgender issues and things like that. Is, the, is their goal just to get those out front early, get them passed, so that y'all can deal with issues that actually affect South Carolinians? Sure. I, I, you know, <laughs> listen, I'm a, I'm a cynic through and through when it comes to that stuff. I I can't say enough. And if y'all let me get on soapbox for two <laughs> go, minutes go, here. Go, go, go. Here, it fill is, her up. Here I know, go. I know. <laughs> y'all, it is, it is really, really discouraging to keep seeing these bills. The bottom line of these bills is not, you know, is not the welfare of children. Right. We've got these national organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom. They push these bills. The last 990 that I saw for them they what made is a, a 990. Uh, sorry, is- that's their that's their their quote a nonprofit, right. and that is their nonprofit tax return that they have to file with the IRS. Uh, they made a hundred million dollars last year. That sounds like the wow. Shaheen Law Firm, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, listen, yeah. So you know, I mean, their their presidents pulling in six hundred thousand wow. a year. They're, wow. But Crazy. what they're doing is they're using that. Then some of that money is going back in in yeah. pro- Republican primaries. Yeah. They're primarying a lot of my great friends in the yeah. House that are trying really hard to do good work, and it's pernicious. And so, I am a cynic when it comes to why we're doing those bills. But frankly, it's really discouraging. It's hurtful. You know, we, less than one percent of South Carolina children are transgender. They're trying to ban even the mental health care. You know, yeah, it's just right. it's yeah. too much. I've never quite understood it, but you know, it 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 unfortunately it tends to um, rally some of their base. I don't I don't quite get it. Um, but let's move on because you've got a really interesting bill. On a more positive note, there was a great story on ABC News a couple weeks ago about a bill that you've sponsored. And when I first read it, I kind of went, "That's interesting," but it, it deals with. Um, the, the desire and goal, Vincent, to get more women elected to the General Assembly. And one of the impediments is child care. Tell our yep. listeners about your bill. Thank you. So I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, I did. I introduced a bill along. It's a bipartisan bill. I've got a, some great co-sponsors on the bill. Uh, and it would allow candidates to use campaign funds, just like a yard sign or a campaign consultant is an essential expenditure for a lot of candidates, especially young parents and especially women, child care is just as essential as any other campaign expenditure. You know, if you're a primary caretaker for your children at home, you have to be able to pay for daycare 
during your run. You have to be able to attend events and knock on doors. Believe me, I've tried to knock on doors with a four-year-old. <laughs> it doesn't go well. And my daughter, first house we got, she had to use the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Joel and I, say, yeah. hey, we've all got great kid stories, too. My <laughs> best one since we'll devolve to that real quickly is, so my kids, you know, I was a rural legislator. We had parades. That's mm. what we did. And um, my kids, they were great, and they would come to the parades, and I knew that they could no longer come into my parades when instead of throwing candy to mm-hmm. people, they were trying to hit other kids in the head with the candy. And that's when I was like, okay, they're that done. had to be Austin. I'm going to vote right now. That had to be Austin. But anyway, go ahead, Spencer. So your bill does what exactly? Yeah, so it would, uh, the federal government already allows this, along with wow. 30 other states. Wow. Um, so this is not some trailblazing idea, but sure. essentially it would allow a candidate to use the money that they raise. Again, these aren't, right. this isn't taxpayer money. This is the money that they've raised for their essential campaign expenditures. It would it would simply add this to the list of qualifying expenses. When I first read it and thought about it, I thought, is, she, is it a slippery slope? Because, you know, then could people use their campaign money to buy clothes? Could be, but, but I think what you've done is come up with a creative way that's been accepted both congressionally and 30 other states to increase the diversity in our legislature, and I'm for any reasonable proposal that does that. Well, thank you. And yeah. and I will say for those concerned, you know, we did add in, uh, Representative Erickson and I uh, worked on it together, and we added in a, re- a requirement that it be a licensed daycare facility or a licensed right. yeah, some care facility. Some legitimate things you're not paying yeah. your sister, brother, exactly. mother. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and who is Representative Erickson? Because so, she, you and her don't necessarily always agree on political issues. Ex- yeah, so she's the chairman of education. She's a Republican. Again, this is a bipartisan bill, and we worked really hard yeah. to put in safeguards because I think, you know, of course, people don't want to create a slippery slope with potential and, for abuse. And listen, just to remind our listeners, and Joel, when your dad was serving back in the 70s and 80s, the money you raised for your campaign was your money. You could spend on whatever the hell you wanted to, wow. remember? And yeah. when you left office, you just took it with you. Wow. And some elected officials, they'd raise two, $300,000, and they'd be like, wait a minute, why am I doing this? And they'd retire, and they'd take the two or 300 with them. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's right. Spencer, um, I want to ask you another question about sort of the upcoming session, um, because you're now in the last year of a two-year session, and you know, given that this is your third or fourth session, whatever, you know, you're, you, and you're quick, you're a quick study, you, you, you kind of catch on to things. Kind of what's the mood in the legislature? Do you see people kind of as we approach the March filing deadline? By the way, if you file for office, it's, what is it, the first or second week in March? Something like that. I, I yeah, thought it was towards the end of March, but yeah, yeah it's, it's like a two week period. In end of March. March. Last two weeks of March. Last yeah. two weeks of March. And I remember people used to say, oh, well, we're going to do this, but we got to wait till yeah. March. <laughs> Mostly those are Republicans, right? They, <laughs> that's right they would that's say, right. we got to wait till after March before, before we take we this bill. Before we vote on the off. gas tax right, or right. the cigarette tax. So is there going to be a lot of turnover in the House? Or what's the mood, as Joel said? Is Are people anxious? or is Yeah. It, what do you feel? Yeah, you know, I think. On my side, on my caucus from the Democrats, uh, you know, the usual sort of. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we uh, we had a pretty sobering caucus retreat and we went through our numbers for, you know, competitive districts. And and listen, we've got work to do. Let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. Um, What is the future? What do you see as the future of the Democratic Party in the state? Is it going to be this... um, you know, super minority for a while. Um, what or there would, seats that, or are there seats yeah. y'all can pick what, up? What would mm-hmm. change that? Mm-hmm. Um, just how do you see the future? Yeah, so I think this coming election cycle, the low-hanging fruit are going to be the seats most recently lost. I think a lot of those were, you know, just weird situations. We had a, a 
one that was a super local issue. We had one where, you know, honestly, I think a couple of the candidates could have could have done a little, you know, knocked a Worked few a more doors harder, sure. and raised yeah. a little bit more money. We had so, some districts that Democrats held that were strongly Democratic leaning and Republicans won them. And you're referring to those districts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I think those are the low hanging <laughs> fruit in terms of working hard, rebuilding there. There are a couple flipping opportunities, but I think it's more of a long game. You know, I don't necessarily see a big change coming right away. Uh, you know, we've got a new a new chair for the party. And I think she's initiated the project roadmap task force. We've been looking at sort of the long-term, you know, it's the nuts and bolts work that you've got to put in. Yeah. You know, the messaging, I think we've got to coalesce around that, but we've also got to be, you know, coalescing around coordinated campaigns and, and all kinds of good on the ground work. How much does the national uh, portrayal of Democrats and Republicans trickle down and affect the, these races? How do you oh, say? a ton. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, with the 24 hour news cycle and social media, right. these are all nationalized races. And, and you know, well, I was talking to somebody about that today, Vincent. We were talking about, um, you know, a certain potential Democratic primary. Right. Okay. And, and think about this. You know, you got a Democratic primary and, um, he said to me, his friend of mine, well, you know, but I know a lot of Republicans, and this is another part of yeah. state. And I said, you know, it used to be you could count on that. but They come I, vote in another primary. Yeah, I don't think they don't, they're, they're, in today's hyper-partisan yeah. environment, I don't yeah. think a lot of Republicans could get caught dead voting in the Democratic primary, right. you know? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, when I ran for office, I actually got criticized because I'd voted in two Republican primaries. Yeah, you go, but, girl. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? yeah. But uh, I don't know how much that's changing. I, I get sort of— Maybe I live in a little bubble down in Charleston yeah, because I think it's a little different the there. The Remind us again about the, 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 the boundaries of your district. Yeah. So uh, I live on Folly and my district kind of goes out from there. I've got Folly Beach, James Island, Johns Island, and then up the coast, Kiowa, or excuse me, down the coast, Kiowa and Seabrook. And, and frankly, the one of the greatest differences in Charleston is that you have white voters that will vote for Democrats. Whereas in much of the state, that pattern very much will not exist. And Particularly white, in rural South Carolina. Yeah, white voters yeah. are now voting heavily, heavily Republican, regardless of the candidates. And, yeah. and African-Americans vote heavily, heavily Democratic, regardless yeah. of the candidates. And one of the things that's interesting, I think, is, you know, for me, is optimistic, is that Charleston somewhat breaks that pattern. Oh, yeah. I mean, listen, my district uh, is, I think, less than a 10 percent BVAP, which is the black vote, right. you know, average black voters excuse me, black voting age population. But, um, and so you are, obviously we're seeing a lot of white Democrats down in Charleston. Does your district, how does your district vote in national elections? Like in say Lindsey Grant, Jamie Harrison's race. Yeah. So we've been looking at those numbers. Um, It's, I mean, it's a true 50, 50 district. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I've always said, Vincent, Spencer, you're a a, a better representative of this. (laughs) Yeah. You're a microcosm of your district. Yeah. I mean, we, we were all particularly in the House, microcosms of your district. Yeah. Spencer, I want to move back to the state legislature. Uh, budgets coming out. You've got, you know, for years, Vincent, the uh, legislature has been um, living off of all this Washington oh, stimulus money, <laughs> even though our <laughs> Republican congressional delegation voted against it for the most That's part, not right. entirely. Um, but that money is not going to be there moving forward. Although the economy is doing well, you're going to have some new money. But yeah. as you know, with inflation, the cost to provide education and health care goes up as well. Mm-hmm. Are there any big fights that you see coming up on the budget? Or is it, you know, is any, you know, I saw the governor propose, you know, tuition freezes again on college, but yeah. doesn't want to give them as much money as they want. Right. Wants to put money in some infrastructure. Any big push and pulls that we need to be aware of? You know, I think. For the most part, we're going to be 
on the margins, on, on the budget. You yep. know, it, it's not a huge year, like you said. We're, the, a lot of the federal stimulus money that we've had the luxury of working with won't, you know, this is the third year, and so it won't continue. Uh, unfortunately, and y'all know this, we've just chronically underfunded for so many years that no matter how much money we put in for roads and schools, it feels like we're behind the eight ball. Um, so, you know, I've been trying to talk down in Charleston, trying to figure out, how we can provide the wraparound services for our kids that need, you know, maybe they need eyeglasses or reading intervention or mental health services. Uh, And the best I can figure is that we've got to be doing a block grant program. This is my new personal proposal, but we've got to be doing some kind of block grant program where a nonprofit can come in, you know, rather than growing DMH and the school districts with recurring expenditures, we can make use of some of this non-recurring money by offering a grant block program uh, that nonprofits with letters of support from their school districts, you know, that they could contract with these nonprofits to provide some of this wraparound. I Sounds don't, like what was the program we had when Senator Leatherman was here? Where he <laughs> competitive grants, competitive grants. Like that means you it. had to compete for Senator Leatherman's attention <laughs> and support by voting for the budget. You get a check <laughs> for your project, Representative, <laughs> Representative Wetmore. You brought up an issue that I have seen developing across the state, even in my small town, which we never really saw before, and that is homelessness. Um, in Columbia, Joel, I see it as a as a very real problem. Sure. Yeah. Um, and we had Mayor Rickman on and talked did. about it. He's yeah. doing some really innovative um, things there. But but it seems to be an increasing problem. Is that getting any attention at the state house, or do you see that it will? You mentioned Department of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. It has been chronically underfunded for right. years and years and years. Right. We closed all of most of the mental health facilities in right. the state, right. and the result in the long term is there's like people on the street camping out. Yeah. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, and you know our jails are our number one yes. provider of mental health yeah. services. So emergency rooms and jails are yeah. where the mental health. That's, that's a pretty sobering statement. Yeah. yeah, is that something that the state wants to take on more on a statewide basis, or are they just going to pretty much? Leave it to community by community, Spencer. Well, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, again, I think that if we can figure out a real and meaningful way to invest in nonprofits that are willing to contract to provide some of these services, that's about the only way I can see out of this mess. Right, right. I, I think the reality is we're not going to grow government. We're not going to do some of the the you know, if we really were going to attack it, we would sit down and we would come up with a new agency or a yeah. task force or something. I don't see the appetite for that. Um, so I think it is going to be piecemeal, unfortunately. Um, I do think, you know, to your point, we are talking a lot about mental health, Good. but not as much about sort of the extreme of that yeah. is once it gets to a point of homelessness. I just see it as a place where locally, you know, Republicans and Democrats in your local community, they don't really see a distinction on this. They don't want homeless people, sure. you know, camping out right. on the roads, right. and they shouldn't. And, right. it's and not, most of them feel like there's a need to provide a service. Yeah, and it's not right. healthy for the people who are there. Right. And so yeah. I, I just think there's some potential for people to— to get together on that right now. We talked mm-hmm. to Mayor Rickman in Columbia. It's really been pushed down on the local level. They were spending millions and millions of dollars trying to deal with it. But you all have a big problem in Camden? Yeah. We, you know, Camden's small, but we do see a problem. Ten years ago, you would not have seen three or four people roaming around with shopping carts in downtown Camden mm-hmm. with all their stuff in it, but you see that now. Really? Spencer, any sleeper issues? Every now and then there's this issue that percolates to the top that nobody says, God, who saw that coming? Anything, anything <laughs> out there that, I mean, bond reform, is that something that still people are— kicking around as part of this judicial reform process? Uh, you know, I, th- I think, so we did the big bond reform bill last year. We've we've created the new pre-sentencing commission, I think yep. it's called. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of sleeper issues, I, I think it's very interesting that 
the uh, you know the the remake of the three M committee and watching them take on. And the three M committee <laughs> is the House Municipal Medical and Military Committee, tell our where all about. freshman House members go when they join <laughs> right. the House. Tell our tell our listeners about the remake you referred yeah. to. Though. Yeah, so you know. With some of the losses in the last election for Democrats, I think there was a lot of pressure on Republican leadership to sort of, quote, take that committee Traditionally, back. Traditionally, that committee had been the— Chaired by a Democrat. The, the, I don't know what you call it, the bone thrown to the Democrats. Yeah, and, and I they guess it was part of some compromise, yeah, but, you know, back yeah, when they yeah. elected the Speaker. 1994. But there you go. So uh, so now I think given the numbers in the House, there was a lot of pressure. And so they have, they've, uh, Celeste Davis is the new chair of she's that. She's from your neck of the woods, right? She, she's down uh, Berkeley County. Yeah. So she's got a lot of that area. Um, and she's, she's wonderful. So, you know, while we'd been looking at this CON or certificate of need issue for years and years, mm-hmm. you know, hey, I like to say you put a woman in there. And you got it done. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, She seems like um, yeah. she, she's got a good head on her shoulders. I want to tell you a great story because we like to tell stories on this. <laughs> when I was a, um, I think it's my second or third year in the house before I moved over to education. It must have been my second year because I moved over to education uh, the next year. Um, may you rest in peace, Joe Brown, Chairman yes. Joe Brown, <laughs> Joe was the chairman of the three yeah, committee, well. and he would do whatever Speaker Wilkins yes, wanted him to do. Yep. And um, the late, great, may also rest in peace, Senator Pinckney, who was on that committee with me, he and I devised a plan. We, um, we went and we figured if it's the military committee mm-hmm. that we could, because part of the military committee at that point was had something to do with the statehouse grounds. I don't know what it huh. is today. <laughs> so we um, took a bill and we, we, we took a bill during the middle of a 3M committee. We asked Chairman Brown, could we? unanimous consent to go off the agenda and bring up a bill. And, of course, Joe Brown is the nicest person. Why, young man? Sure. What would you like to bring before this committee? And we brought a bill to remove the flag. And then we voted it out of committee. And Wilkins went nuts. He was a control freak. Oh, man. I mean, mean, they they ultimately ruled we were out of order. We had this big, what do you call it when you contest a ruling of the chair? Appeal of the chair. I mean, it was just a fun... 48-hour chaotic time, and ultimately, as you can imagine, we lost, but we did vote on the flag a couple years later. But anyway. My my favorite Wilkins story was um, I was the uh, second vice chair of judiciary, and Merle was the first vice chair. And Merle and I— Who was chairman at the time? Jim Jim Harrison was chairman. And so um, Jim was not there, and Merle was was chairing it. And I was like, Merle, leave for a while, and I'm going to chair it. (laughs) (laughs) Merle left. And I was chairing it, and Wilkins walked in, and you thought he was going to wet his pants. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a great relationship. We need to get Speaker Wilkins on the show because he, he's, he's, he's he, he continues to do great work. Um, Spencer, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you this: uh, President Biden was in your hometown this week. That's right. Did you get a chance to attend the speech? No, unfortunately, I just you know that day before session, you I was like back to we back with, <laughs> back to back at my office Gotta trying work. to yeah trying to earn a little bit of money before. We come back up but, here. But this was interesting, Vincent, and, and we didn't talk about this in Bourbon Briefs, but he spoke at Mother Emanuel AME Church. That sure. was the church right. where Dylan Roof um, shot and killed nine innocent people, including our friend Clementa Pinckney. Uh, later that afternoon, the next day, former governor and presidential candidate Nikki Haley accused Joe Biden of giving, quote, an offensive speech. And this is the same Nikki Haley who forgot why the Civil War was fought. Yeah, okay. and, and fought to keep the Confederate battle flag up until nine people were murdered. So, in yeah, just very interesting how this thing comes full circle. But, but Spencer, um, Joe Biden 
um, is going to do well in South Carolina in the primary, it's going to start in Charleston. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's and, right. And I don't think anybody's really worried I mean, about it, his— Isn't the question not whether he wins the primary in South Carolina, but does anybody show up to vote? And I don't know that that's a reflection on him, but, like, it's not seen as a competitive no, race. I couldn't so even tell you the day. I, vote, I really right? couldn't. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's the— People are going to be looking at that number, but it's sort of a meaningless it number. Is a it, it is a meaningless number. We are taping this show, folks, on a Wednesday, and tonight we've got a, a great debate taking place between uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis in Iowa. Joel which, will which, be watching. Vincent will not. Um, <laughs> Spencer will not. Spencer, did you serve with um, Governor Haley, or had she already no, left? No, she had already left by the time I came. I got you. I haven't had the pleasure. Lucky, yeah, yeah. It, it'll be interesting. She is my constituent, though, I should add. She lives uh, on Kiowa. Well, <laughs> well Governor, uh, if you're listening, Spencer Wetmore's doing a great job. <laughs> Send her a campaign contribution. <laughs> Uh, I do want to ask you this, though. Um, a lot of talk about that congressional district down your way yeah. with Nancy May. She's yeah. kind of made headline after headline after headline. She can't keep her staff employed. Um, we keep hearing that there's going to be a well-funded primary opponent for her. What yeah, do you think? I am hearing the same thing. I don't know exactly who it'll be, but and, I, I am hearing the same And just to thing. remind us, that district was redrawn. It used to be a swing district. A Democrat could have won it. Right. It was redrawn. Is it a pretty solid Republican seat or— um, you know, I think it is. But again, like you said, Charleston's a yeah, weird it is. place. Would you know, I don't Spencer Wetmore ever think <laughs> no. about maybe representing us in D.C.? No, probably not. Unfortunately, fundraising is my least favorite part uh, of politics. Okay. <laughs> Anybody that enjoys fundraising is a sick person. <laughs> <laughs> Spencer Wetmore, um, you are just always uh, a delight to have on the show. You, 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 I think you're a ray of sunshine for the General oh, Assembly. Great. And I keep up with you and all your great work. <laughs> I know you're going to file for re-election, and we wish you nothing but the best. And Vincent, let's do a last-minute toast to our guest, Spencer Wetmore. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Vincent, you know, when we were in the Senate, I really enjoyed working with the South Carolina Realtors Association. They really helped me better understand my community. It's true, Joel. They also helped us a lot with our constituents. And by the way, my son is a realtor. And I'm very proud of your son. He also used to be a director of the podcast. <laughs> Vincent, they tend to lend their expertise, their their knowledge of the local real estate market is extremely valuable in helping us understand what's going on. It's true, Joel. And also, remember, we were in the Senate. They were a very powerful voice to ensure that policies supporting property rights and the promotion of fair housing practices occurred. Those are things they care about. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's why, Vincent, we are pleased to have the South Carolina Realtor Association as a proud sponsor of Bourbon in the Back Room. We'll be right back. Okay, Vincent, we're back. Spencer Wetmore, man, what a breath of fresh air. She really is. You know, now she was elected almost three years ago. Yeah. Um, I thought the discussion about her district was fascinating. She's really, you know, Charleston, that whole area uh, is is kind of a, a changing area with so many people moving to it. Uh, I like her attitude of wanting to cooperate with people, but still being very proud uh, of the party she chose to, to run uh, with, I, I think that she's got a long career ahead of her if she wants it. But yeah. maybe, you know, look, if you were a Democrat in the House right now in South Carolina, would you want to make a long career of it or would you want to run for other offices? So if you were I have this politics? debate a lot yeah. with friends of ours like Beth and Todd and, and, and others and even in the Senate, yeah. you know, um, and I'm so grateful for their service, right. you know, um, so I can't answer that question, but yeah. it's got to be frustrating. When you and I were there, we were within three or four votes. Well, of- and you built—it was a coalition government. You had sent, you had a coalition of Republicans and Democrats that elected leadership that, you know, tackled the big issues. But right now, not so much. Yeah, I tell you what I like about Spencer. She's smart. 
She does her homework. Yeah. She doesn't tend to just meddle in things for the sake of meddling. She picks a few issues, like we talked about this um, campaign-funded child care legislation yeah. Yeah. that she has sponsored. And, you know, I, I agree with you. I think she could have a bright future. I think if the state ever turns a, a uh, shade of purple, she'd be a great statewide candidate. She'd be a great candidate for governor. You can only <laughs> hear in-depth interviews with House members like Spencer Wetmore on what podcast, Vincent Shaheen? Bourbon in the Back Room. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bourbon in the Back Room is produced by Jonathan Valladares, Campbell Douglas, and Austin Shaheen, directed by Holly Van Horn. <laughs>